it's like walking across snow the first time. You're the first one with snow prints, footprints. So there's something a little bit magical about that. And yeah. I, the, the kid yeah. in me still likes that idea that I'm doing something that maybe no one else has really done or not very many. So it makes you feel special. And I think that's that's quite important. And if you've got a job that allows you to feel just occasionally, wow, that's amazing or that's weird or whatever, then I think that's really good. And I've always managed to find not every job for sure, but you know, there are jobs that come and go and, and occasionally there is a there is a good job and you put up with some of the other ones in order for the next one to come along. Welcome to the Surveyor Hub Podcast. Podcast for surveyors who just love what they do. I'm Marion Ellis, and in today's episode, I chat with Gordon Johnston, Chartered Land Surveyor who has worked both as a land surveyor and hydrographic surveyor in many places. Yep, he's one of those cool geospatialers, which will clearly come across in this podcast because I find this kind of work so fascinating but hard to get my head around that we actually recorded the podcast and then we had to do it again because I forgot to ask him about what he actually did for a living. <laughs> so with the magic of podcast editing, we have a slightly longer than usual podcast, which I hope you'll enjoy. Hello, Gordon. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Nice to be here. So for people who have no idea who you are, Gordon, and I love guests like this, they're my favourites, introduce yourself. Give us a bit of your career background. So, okay, just before I do that, though, um, I, I totally get the concept of having these conversations because two weeks ago I was down in the South Coast at a meeting and there were some young surveyors, young career people in the room and the formal event was over and we went to the pub, as you do, and it was really interesting talking to an, a guy who had just, he's still at university, but he's an internship in a big company and he had a really bright brain, obviously, and could articulate all the things he was doing, but had pretty much zero experience outside of, you know, going to university, which is when you think that you know it all, of course. And he wasn't like that at all, but he was really nice. But it just, you're absolutely right. It, it reminded me that, and that evening in particular reminded me that I've got this wealth of knowledge that we often don't impart or pass on other than in small isolated droplets to whoever happens to be with you at the time when something comes up, usually some money crisis in, in either work or life. So yeah, so I'm a geospatial surveyor or a land and hydrographic surveyor, depending on how you want to describe that. And it's something that I've really enjoyed doing and still enjoy doing. I don't always consider myself an expert though, because I don't really do survey now. I talk to people about it, but I don't, you know, I'm not out there actually collecting data and verifying the data in the field the way that the traditional surveyor might be thought of. So I started wanting, I think, to be an architect, but not a surveyor, that's the point. I think it was an architect. I had a friend, a bit older than me, went to university, and he was going to be an architect. Uh, he didn't become an architect either, but he did lovely drawings of things that I thought, well, that's interesting, and that doesn't look like real work. And I wanted to sort of not do any real work. I just wanted to enjoy myself without any, you know, there's no plan often. So went to went to university, went to Glasgow, and I wanted to do astronomy. Now, the thing about astronomy Scotland is <laughs> there's a weather problem that doesn't always benefit you. I mean, it's why there's a, a submarine base in Scotland, you know, the cloud cover is great. So that didn't put me off. You know, I just thought, oh, well, there might be a, an opportunity to get to go to Hawaii or the Canaries and, and go to a, a big uh, telescope. 
anyway, the long and short of it was I did astronomy and I did geology and I did geography, but didn't do that well in the astronomy stuff. There was too much about the birth of stars and geography I found fairly interesting, but a bit of geography that was really quite fascinating was stuff to do with surveying, which I had no idea. I mean, it even existed. You know, I mean, I knew about maps just about as you do from school. So the long and the short of it was about halfway through year one, I went to my tutor and said, I'm going to do topographic science and I'm not going to do geography or astronomy. When I got him back up off his seat and sat him back down and said, no, I'm serious. I know, you know, this is really what I think I want to do. He went, okay, that's fine, but you'll need to do computing. You can't do the course unless you've done computing. So I had to add another course onto my degree, which was kind of not what I had thought, intended, or even knew about when I said what I said. So you can tell I had no plan or, or no real concept of what was involved. I just knew that it was outdoors doing things, and I was quite good at doing that generally. So did topographic science. Got a job in North Wales, in Clwyd, in Clandudna, with Robertson Research. The guys that used to put rocks in the ballast, uh, that made the ballast for ships. And they had a little survey department because I think someone like Shell were putting a pipeline across North Wales at the time and needed some land survey in input. Um, however, that wasn't my first job. My first job was to get on a plane and go to Libya alone. Uh, that sounds so, worth so, really... so can I just, can I just stop yeah, yeah, you there? Sorry. This is where my mind just starts to get blown. Okay. You know, it's like, you know, you, you started off with astronomy. I just moved to Wales. I just got on a, a plane to Libya. And I think it's really interesting. So as... <laughs> Because I just didn't think any of those those things. And it just goes to show how where I guess the how we're nurtured as kids or, you know, what's in, what's important to us and the security that we have, that we have that passion and open mind to be free and explore. And 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 you said you wanted to do something that you enjoy. Whereas I remember thinking, I need to get a career and I need to be able to earn so I can keep a roof over my head. And yeah, very, very different backgrounds. But, I, but it just sort of highlights that if we give kids the wide view of what is possible with the, the reassurance that you can earn, you can be safe and have a, a job and things are going to be okay, that we want to sort of open, you know, widen the boundaries of, of what's possible. So I find that, that fascinating. How, you know, you, you said you were sort of always... Uh, like liked being outside. Were you sort of like like that as a kid? Do you were you very aware of your your built environment, or did it just all come together when you were at you know uni? I suppose the answer to that is probably not really. It's a good question. I don't suppose I've ever really talked too much about my childhood in that sense. We had parts of the family had had fields and and farms and outdoor spaces and things, which was nice. So I suppose from that point of view, I, I was exposed to being outside perhaps more than other kids. Certainly not, you know, I wasn't an, you know, I wasn't a, a city dweller in an apartment or in a flat, and you know, no garden sort of upbringing in in a in a sort of truly urban sort of sense. So yeah, so definitely got exposure, and I think I just thought that was a you know kind of what what you got exposed to when you're in Scotland. You know, there's lots of space, and you can you can get there usually in some form. But it was never my, you know, I never, I never had that sort of concept of, um, you know, I must do this and then that probably leads to the other thing and there's a plan. There was no structure, there was no plan. It was really just opportunity came along mm-hmm. and you don't even recognise it at the time that it's either a good or a bad opportunity. I mean, I thought Libya was probably the worst place to go. I didn't know anything about it. The reason I went on my own was because the company at the time had a, 
an insurance limit that they could only put four people in a plane together in case it was a disaster. They couldn't afford five people to, to sort of have a problem. So I got, for some reason, I got, yeah, exactly. So I was picked as the fifth for some reason. <laughs> We'd never been before. The others had all been before. They went, oh, yeah. So they obviously knew what they were doing. They were a bit more savvy. But the thing was, at the time, Libya was kind of an interesting state with Colonel Gaddafi in charge. And the Libyan Arab Jamahariya um, airline didn't really, in my view, didn't really observe air traffic control instructions when on the ground. So they, so my flight, in my words, went to the end of the runway and took off. I mean, it didn't, you know, it didn't queue up and wait for the other one. So the plane that I was meant to be behind when we got to Libya was actually behind me. So I got there first on my own, and I was like, "Oh my god!" With all these people, but no, there was no plan, and there was no. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just think it's opportunities come along, and if it's something that you interest, and I suppose that it's heart overhead in that sense, you, you, you follow that. You follow your heart, or you follow your head, and maybe, maybe you were maybe more headstrong and, and sensible, and I was maybe more impetuous in that sense. Oh, but that wasn't, that wasn't that wasn't my. Well, yeah, but but, but, I, but what I've seen, and and when I talk to people on the other podcast. And I, 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 you know, I'm really interested in the different types of surveyor that, that are out there. And a lot of the residential surveyors that I speak to, there's always something in their childhood that they were just became aware of their, their built environment, where they live, their community. You know, Uncle Bob was a builder, a surveyor in the family somewhere or, or aware of their built environments, which is interesting from a geo point of view as to how you get involved in the, the landscape. How old were you when you went to Libya then? 21. I went to university a year early because I didn't want to do the morning reading at school, which you had to stand up in front of the school and read, you know, whoever it was, John chapter four, you know, whatever. So I didn't want to do that. And I found the way to get out of that was to pass some exams and get out of here. So that's kind of what I did. So obviously there was maybe some, you know, there was some sort of determination somewhere within me, but um, I really hated that kind of public exposure for some reason. And so, uh, hence, you know, doing this thing is called not the, yeah. the, yeah, exactly, thanks. So, you, yeah, you, you, you come across these hurdles, you have to deal with them in some form. So, I chose to get out and go to university. And so, I went a year early to university. And in Scotland, it's a four-year, the honours course is a four-year undergraduate course, not three years. So, I was out and working just briefly for a couple of months before I went to Libya. And it was over Christmas and New Year. So, you know, that was kind of odd as well, because... You know, you're not necessarily, you know, if you advertise that job and said, okay, we'd like you to go, you know, somewhere on your own. I mean, it, 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 it was never sort of advertised as that in that sense. But if you kind of look back to it and say, yeah, what was I doing? What was I thinking? Why did I do that? But I think it was great. And it was quite, it, it was quite enlightening, I suppose, to be in terms of being away and doing things and working with other people. In, in and Sounds like an adventure at that age. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and I mean, you're with other people, you're in a team. It's not that you're, you're actually on your own, on your own. But yeah, lots of things happen and um, yeah, it's all good stuff. But the Christmas and the New Year, the, the, the funny thing about that was, I think it was Helen Mirren's brother was the, the British Caledonian country manager. And so I asked him if I could get my kilt flown out for New Year. And so he arranged for someone in Glasgow to meet my mum who with a Tesco's bag brought my, you know, brought my kilt along and all the bits. And then it was, it was ferried out in the, you know, in the, in the, the bowels of the cockpit or somewhere. And I got my kilt just in time for New Year. So that's the sort of thing you could do. Like you say, there was no sense of, is that, is that dangerous? Is that, is that okay? You know, 
you just yeah you just call out someone that you think yeah they could help and vice versa. and you wear a kilt in that heat in Libya absolutely yeah. <laughs> yeah Scottish man through and through absolutely yeah so so tell me a bit about the you know what what you did in Libya and then what what then what you did after so Libya was actually a land survey uh, project in Benghazi which is about the size of Stirling or maybe Wrexham you know it's not that big a place a couple of hundred thousand people at most that's my hometown Right. So they were building seven ring roads. Someone had sold them this planning concept that they needed seven ring roads. And so our job was to survey, essentially, the, the infrastructure that wasn't there was going to be put in place. So we had to survey around the city, the potential areas that would be the ring road. And once we'd surveyed it, someone would go and dig it up and lay a cable. And then we'd go and survey it again. And then someone would go and dig it up and lay some water. And we'd go and survey it again. And then someone would go along and tarmac it, because it hadn't been tarmacked at that point. And then someone would go and put some drains in and, and, you know, it was just madness. I mean, it was, you, you're standing there surveying, knowing that someone's going to destroy this. For them, it was a good reason, you know, they were going to put something in like some power or cable, for example. So that was good you know, to put that in for the, for the, you know, the people in the town. But so, the, uh, so this is a proper tripod stuff. Oh yes. This is, um, theodolites and, and staffs and. Maybe a total station if you were one of the lucky ones to get on the sort of technical end of the of the equipment that day. Because there weren't any battery charging points out there. You know, you either took a car battery with you and it might last the day or you didn't have a battery. You know, it didn't last. So, you know, you didn't have the technology around that made it easy to fire up things. And I remember not long after that going for an interview for another job and it was a, a seismic job in, I don't know, somewhere in Africa. I just imagined it all being jungle. And the guy said to me, no, no, we don't use any batteries because there's no power and we can't charge them. And I thought, that's kind of a backward step. I, I don't know that I really want to do that job. So I didn't do that job. Yeah, I missed out on more jobs than I got. And so Libya was really a land survey job, infrastructure. We went out into the desert a couple of times to do kind of star shots and, and very traditional sort of geodetic control type work prior to satellites, essentially, or... No, the satellites were there, but they, but you know, people hadn't bought any of the equipment, and it was expensive, so it was easier to put a team of people on the ground for six months or something ridiculous. So, the, yeah, there were a couple of things there, and you just learn about the logistics and the practicality of living in small groups for a long period of time. You know, away from home, your induction is a bottle of coke and the hottest chili they can give you, and then from there on, then you know, if you've survived that, you're basically you're okay, sort of thing. But you're right, it, it's an adventure, and. And the whole of surveying is an adventure or should be looked at as an adventure, not because it isn't serious and it doesn't have huge impact, but because you've got to enjoy it. You've got to, you know, make your own war stories, make your own experiences count and, and be of some value, if not to yourself, at least to some other people as well. So, yeah, so that, that it wasn't that long a stint. I did a couple of stints in Libya and I came back and then I went and joined DECA, as it was. So that's the offshore electronics company used to make televisions and records so DECA was a big name at the time I, I can't remember what it stood for someone once knew what DECA stood for because it did actually mean something but um th so that that was another land survey job although it's an offshore survey company they wanted to put in control for things like seismic so looking for oil and gas or looking for minerals to dredge offshore all the shingle of all the sand that you use is quite often it's brought on onshore from offshore. That was quite interesting. Sort of people asking you to be a land survey when you're in a company that's not a land survey company. 
and I found that they didn't really they didn't really have a concept of the sorts of things that I did. So there, you know, there already was some sort of separation of knowledge and experience and understanding. There was people, I guess they'd been in the Navy, they knew hydrographic surveys sort of back and forward. I didn't really know very much about it. Um, you know, you do it on the course sort of thing, but I wasn't a practicing surveyor in that sense. But they didn't really know what I did from a land survey point of view, and I didn't really know what they did from a hydrographic point of view. So there, you know, as a, as, a, as a residential surveyor, you're probably looking at geomatics or geospatial and thinking, well, that's that group of guys. They all knew, you know, they all know what each other's do. No, we already don't know what our partners are doing and things like that. And I think that's one of, that's a challenge for surveying just generally is to get the, some of the, the common articles across and some of the common concepts, I think. And I think that a lot, that will resonate with a lot of surveyors, whatever field that, that they're in, that sometimes surveyors can be the only surveyor in an organisation you know, or a department, and no one knows what they do, and it's hard to explain or, or even, you know, put into context how we can help each other, you know. And so it sounds like it's, it's really sort of breaking down barriers, working together as a team, and that's why I guess where all the yeah. skills, you know, soft skills, if you like, uh, come in. I, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, what I found interesting sort of moving forward slightly was you do a bunch of work in the field and you come back and you realise that, there's some people in the office who don't, even they don't really know kind of what you're doing or why you're doing it or what, why it was easy or difficult or why it went wrong, inverted commas. And so you explain it to them and, it, and you, you, you can see, uh, yeah, no, no one's really explained it to them before. Okay, why is that? What, why is nobody? So I used to talk to the sales guys quite a lot who were kind of pariahs a lot of the time because, oh my God, what they sold us now, you know? We have to do this for how much, when, how long? You know, it was all like, you know, all everything was slightly wrong with it. Oh, we get and, we get that in residential selling services. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I, I think it's a universal sort of approach. You know, if they can make it cheaper to you, but you know, yeah, it's all about making money, I suppose, in that sense. And there's a discussion there between commercial and professional, probably. But what I found was, if I could get in and talk to the commercial stroke salespeople early enough, there was half a chance that they might listen to something I said, and there was a better chance that we might avoid the problem that I've just had to work on next time around wasn't always that simple. I'm sure I wasn't alone in trying to do that, but I felt that that was the way to influence them. And then, of course, what happened was they would start to ask you questions after a while because they, you know, they had someone that they could actually get an answer out of. And I, and I found that was quite, that was quite useful because it helped me find out what the hell was happening. And I wanted to know that because I wasn't in control of any of this. I was simply a field surveyor who was about to be sent offshore somewhere. And occasionally I would be asked, you know, are you okay going and doing this? But most of the time it was, okay, we have a job. Can you get to such and such a place or get on a train tomorrow morning or whatever? So you're kind of on duty, on call. And it was it was not always great, you know. Lots of times you actually want to do something tonight or tomorrow and you're going to go, no, I can't do that. I'm going to have to go to work. So that whole disruption in my life, I felt one way to influence that was to influence what we were selling as jobs. This is the grand scheme when I, when I analyze it now. I didn't have this plan at the time, but I think unwittingly I was trying to influence my own sort of jeopardy in what jobs I was doing by ensuring that the salespeople had sold nice jobs rather than bad jobs. And if I knew there was a nice job versus a bad job, I, you know, I suppose I was hoping that I could influence the operations teams that I'm suitable for the nice job and the, you know, the, and the bad job 
my phrase could go to someone else. It, again, it's part of an adventure to, to not know what you're doing next. You know, there's some excitement in that, of course. And some people get pigeonholed, so they sort of know the type of job they're going to get. It's not really an adventure in that sense. It's not an unknown adventure, at least. For me as a surveyor, I found I was doing quite diverse survey support tasks with teams of engineers, geoscientists, etc. So I maybe had it more varied because I was willing to do that. But some types of jobs, like positioning a, a, a drilling rig, is notoriously a not a great sort of profile as a, as a work experience. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, going and doing it, it, it is, is fine. It's satisfying, you know, but the, the work-life balance, as you say, for, for a job like that is you don't really know what's about to happen until someone phones you up. It's short notice because you can get to a point of departure quite quickly. So even in the UK, if it's, you know, East Anglia or Aberdeen, neither of them are very far away. So within a couple of hours, you can essentially be offshore. And then typically what happens when the, a drilling rig is moving is it needs you really, really quickly to tell it that it's departing the right place. So all your systems have to be up and running that you take with you and you mobilize. You don't get there and switch anything on. There's nothing there when you before you get there. So you have to take your own survey system, set it up, switch it on before anything else happens. That's okay. But if we're talking now, eight o'clock on Saturday morning, and someone this evening gets a call and by this time tomorrow morning they're offshore, they won't have done much other than worked all through the night to get that system working so that tomorrow morning it will be operational because that's when the rig's going to move. And the rig costs so much, they, you know, they, they won't wait or they can't wait. And basically, you don't have to do anything until you arrive at a new location. So that's great. You can go and sleep for, oh, it's four hours away. Oh, it's four days away. Oh, it's three weeks away. So you don't necessarily know that until you go offshore as well. So that's also quite kind of disruptive because let's say it's just a few days away. So you get a couple of days rest on a personal note. But actually, you're having to make sure everything is working all the way through because when it comes to it, it needs to be working. And when you get there, if the weather's not good, then you have another sort of um, element that, that disrupts the calendar, as it were. And the minute you're on place, they want you off and then you're traveling home. It's quite intense at the start and at the beginning. And there's a bit in the, in the middle that potentially you don't have to do anything. But that doesn't mean to say that you can really relax. So from a work point of view, you're busy. So you're not really thinking about it, but it can be quite, you know, really tiring. And over a period of time, there were a few companies that would start to recognize that this, this is actually dangerous either for the whole, the whole offshore enterprise, the rig, et cetera, but more personally for the individuals who might, who might fly home and then drive home. Oh, there's a couple of things there. Um, firstly, it's that mental preparation to get ready to do a job and that mental load can be exhausting, even if you're mm. not ready to, you know, to actually uh, do the work. I'm really interested in failure and why people make mistakes. And when I work with surveyors uh, and their businesses, I, I talk about well-being. Well-being sounds a bit faffy though, like I'm going to tell you to go and do yoga and drink green tea. But if you're not physically and mentally prepared to do a job, then that's when mistakes happen. Not so much because of your lack of technical knowledge, but, you know, tiredness is like being drunk, you know, and it affects our decision-making and our confidence. And we don't trust our gut instincts as much as we, we, we do, or, you know, we, we should do. So I'm really, uh, really interested in that. But as you were just talking about what it's like to do that kind of work, the only thing I can relate it to, I guess, is people who work in the forces, you know, who might be at home and then they're called up to go and fight a war or to rescue someone or, or whatever. And actually, as we, and I'll put a link in the um, 
show notes because there's a, a small group of um, ex-veterans who are got a little LinkedIn group that are raising awareness because it's quite a great, oh, sorry, there's a lot of transferable skills that come over from people who can work in that way, have the technical knowledge and then come over into surveying. So yeah, it's quite, quite interesting. I'll put a link in the show notes to, um, mm. uh, to that. Mm. You talked about, you know, we talked about sort of being the only person, the only surveyor, if you like, in these, uh, in these situations. From the outside looking in, there seems to be quite a community of geospatialists, of people who work in this, this environment. And they're not all RICS. There's lots of different organizations because it's, because it's global. What's that community like? Uh, um, so we all band together at certain points, probably because we all feel that we're, um, you know, discriminated in some form. People don't understand it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, oh, every surveyor feels like that. Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> that, you know, that, that's right. And um, and certainly the salespeople, as I mentioned earlier, I think, you know, the community is quite strong, be- partly because of some of those work environments where it is quite intense. You are sort of exposed to, you know, a number of pressures. And so one way to sort of vent that is to find someone that understands what you do and, and you know, shout at them and then they can shout back. And so, you know, some of the, the, the geomatics, geospatial, hydrographic societies and, and, and groups are really quite, quite strong in that sense that they, you know, they, they have a collective understanding of what these things are like. And it is hard to describe to someone, you know, to go offshore, there was a, there was a television sort of short series back, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago or something. And it was actually quite good about this kind of Jekyll and Hyde environment where you're at home and everything's normal, but when you're offshore, it changes. And it's even changed since then because it's more inclusive and it's more diverse now than it was, certainly was then. But but there's still the sense that, you know, you're away from home, not everything that you necessarily need or want is there. So, the, you know, the pressure builds on, on certain elements. And I think that the community gets strengthened by that. And then we have all these daft stories about, you know, jobs we've been on or things that have happened to us and, you know, people that are still here and you sometimes wonder, why are they still here? That's just mad that they've survived all of this. And so these stories are quite, you know, they're quite interesting. And once you've, when when you're young, I suppose, and and still open to, you know, all this sort of soaking up the knowledge and the experience and listening to other people's experiences, these are quite exciting experiences. And you kind of think, "Eh, yeah, I'm. I'll have some of those stories sometimes myself. And we're not that many. So in a way, it doesn't take long before somebody knows of you or has heard of you or knows the company that you work for or knows a job that you did. So the, it's a bit it's a bit like LinkedIn in, in, in its own sense in, the, in as much that that community exists and you create it and you, you, know, you, you sort of bond with the people that you can relate to, don't you? So Where, where do they hang out? You know, are they, is there a, an online platform? Is there a LinkedIn? You know, is it or is you know, it just WhatsApp? No, I, I, I think it's, I think it's, a, it's probably all of the above. And you're probably asking the wrong end of the demographic here, um, <laughs> as to where where all this takes place. The best stuff is done face to face. So you know, it is in a pub or it is in a, you know, in one of the meeting rooms when they have a meeting. And you know, it's maybe not the right thing these days but you know generally the, the pub has been a, a central component to it which doesn't always translate to other groups in society or in other parts of the world where you know that's that's just something that isn't going to happen but as an example you know if we said that there's maybe four or five hundred hydrographic surveyors sort of globally that are active on a sort of day-to-day basis it might be twice that but you know any one day is probably about that you can have a society meeting and you'll have 
50 to 100 of them turn up because they're, they're interested to find out where the other ones are and what they've been doing. And it's partly that lack of communication. And I think it's changed. I think today's digital connected world breaks down some of those barriers for a good reason, but it also means some of the reasons why you do certain other things don't then need to exist. So I think some of those society institutions are probably under pressure because what they used to represent, it's harder to differentiate that now to, like you say, LinkedIn or Facebook or WhatsApp. My experience was the face-to-face stuff was really where you, you got all the war stories. You met people that in a work environment, you'd never get to talk to them. You know, they were three levels up and two along and they were important people. But you could have a beer with them or, a, or an orange juice with them at a society meeting and find that actually they're, they're actually normal people. Wow, who knew? We all thought they were weird. So, that you know, and and that's, you know, that humane side, I think that, that kept a lot of people going, that sort of community. It's, it's interesting because, you know, this sort of generational span, you know, but at the start you were talking You're very about... polite. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm there. At the start you were talking about effectively old school skills you know and I resonate with that you know at the moment you know resi surveyors use the um you know laser distos to measure things I'm I was very old school with a tape measure and it's something a bit more tactile for me you know I think from what you've sort of described I can see how you know if you haven't got the battery you haven't got the tech you know you need to go back to the pen and paper and the the old school uh, ways of doing things and so we've got this interesting dynamic, I think, at the moment of people like you and I who have learned how to do it the hard way, perhaps, of the, 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 the um, you know, without the tech. And we've got younger generation who have got all the ways tech and use satellites and lasers and things like that. But there's got to be a meeting in the middle, hasn't there? And breaking down those barriers and, and understanding, but no judgment. I know surveyors who still use, you know, pen and paper to do their surveys and that works for them and they do a good job, whereas others will do it all on an iPad and take pictures and, and it's done. So I think we've got to respect the different ends of the, the spectrum and know that we can add value for both. Because if the battery goes, you can show someone how to do it old school, whereas you've got to learn, you know, can learn a lot from the whole satellite tech and, and those things. So it's really, I mean, you know, we talk about sort of it being diverse and I'll ask you about that in, in a second, but we've got a diverse range of skills in there that we need to uh, to nurture. So it's a small community, and you mentioned going to the pub, which not everyone can do. What's it like in terms of diversity, range of skills, different people? You know, what's that like in the in your area? It's not great by today's standards. I think it's probably true to say it's it's probably terrible actually. Still, um, I think so. If I if I if I if I go back to kind of where I started going offshore then I was the normal profile of a person. White male Caucasian was basically what was happening. And I can remember, it wasn't a talking point, but I, but I remember when I, I first met someone who wasn't white male Caucasian offshore, and I thought, wow, uh, other people come here as well. Kind of an odd thing to think, but, and, and why, would, why wouldn't you have those people? But sadly, you know, I think the historical sort of reasoning is, in my mind, that the um, a large amount, of, and uh, I guess I'm I'm focusing more on oil and gas because that was one of the bigger entities at the time, the bigger sort of communities of of work in in a sector. That's driven a lot by American companies, and America had a you know as we kind of know had quite strong views as to who was to do things or not to do things. So I think that really 
sort of created that uh, environment to start with. It got better over a period of time. So essentially what happened was we would see some male and some females offshore for, for one of any other terms. Um, what that meant, though, was that the living arrangements had to change. And so if a company relied on having eight people in a room, they couldn't do that anymore because they couldn't find eight blokes and eight girls to do that. They maybe had one girl who was maybe a, a, a geologist or a geophysicist on a survey. So that's one of the most qualified people in the vessel would have been a challenge for some vessels because they just weren't set up properly. And actually Norway pioneered, I mean, it sounds terrible, but you know they pioneered sort of single birth cabins because the Norwegians are quite good at that sort of thing. You know, they, they're more socially aware, I think, than lots of other countries. So you would start to see a more diverse group offshore. And that was good. That was nice. And, and you know, it's still not there yet. I'm, I'm absolutely certain just those, the roles that are required and the lifestyle that's expected and to some extent the community that, that surrounds it as well are all really, they're not easy if you're from the outside to, to necessarily sort of be involved and be integrated quite the same way. So that's possibly an extra challenge that some might have to see how to deal with that. And I think there are obviously some companies that are more flexible and have more ability to change and, and manipulate sort of the makeup of, of some of the groups that might go offshore. And I think there are one or two others that are probably, I, I wouldn't say they would necessarily hide behind, oh, that's too difficult, we can't do it, we can't find a berth for you, or we're going to the Middle East and there are certain cultures that aren't going to accept um, somebody in charge from a different sort of origin, as it were. I think some of those reasons that did exist and were legitimate um, do get used out of context to, simply to kind of make life easier. But even before any of that starts, just the people on the course going through university or going through college or doing the apprenticeships, they're, they're massively kind of, you know, blokes <laughs> doing stuff. And then there's a few others that are, you know, sort of around that. And I think that the demographic is not great offshore, but it also is representative a little bit of what, what what's the starting pool of people available. And we need to work harder on that because it is, it's short-sighted to think that, you know, a diverse group of people and experiences and cultures can contribute. And once you go overseas, I mean, properly overseas, you know, if you go to parts of Africa, when I first went, it was probably lots of expat people doing things. Not now. It's, it's, locals and and it's other companies that have been organized and and, and doing survey work with the far east there's lots of, of local companies and things so the culture has changed in that sense so i don't think my experiences are i kind of hope now that it's actually quite hard to sort of replicate some of my experiences but that doesn't make it easier because i just don't think we we have enough of the general demographic getting into what we generally call surveying or, or something around that I guess it's that commitment to inclusion at all levels and, a, and, and on a practical... It's level. partly that, but if you said to some people, we need you to go tomorrow, or, well, tomorrow's my rest day, tough. Uh, okay, well, for some people that won't work. You know, you, you work in a building, um, you can have a room with a prayer mat and, and you can dedicate some time for people that, that you know, want to follow their beliefs. But, you know, you're about to land, you know, 15 billion tons worth of steel somewhere. Some people get quite nervous if they think that it might all have to stop. And some of that's legitimate and, and can be argued for, but but there's kind of extreme examples being used to sort of avoid the problem in the bigger sense. Yeah. And so I kind of hope that you're right, that you know that what, what might have been a challenge can actually be addressed or, or 
you know, inclusion can be a, sort of incorporated now much, much more. And openly, I think most people are, are attempting to do that. I think the 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 other element that, that comes up then is how do operations managers and HR, not so much HR, but operations managers and the training and the mentoring, how do they develop the, the, the survey teams so that it actually actually works and those diverse cultures and, and um, different groups of people um, actually work well together? Because I think there's, um, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but you know, if if you if you think of like a bunch of people like me all going in a job together, you kind of assume that yeah okay we all go to the pub we all play five aside football we're all blokes you know it's kind of very cliched but you know you kind of imagine that we'll all get on until we get drunk and then fight or something especially if you're Scottish but if you've got a, a truly diverse group of six or seven people, what is it that binds them together that makes them you know, that makes that team stronger as a team than the bunch of the individuals. And if you haven't got common ground and common cultural beliefs, that then makes it quite difficult. And and some people adapt and other people, it's less easy for them to adapt. And there's a nurturing and there's a mentoring and there's a and there's a responsibility, I think, on, on management, for want of a better word, those that put the teams together to, to ensure that it's not something that, that doesn't work or causes stress or, or conflict. But it can be quite important because you know some of these some of these jobs in some areas of the world it is quite critical that you get things right not just from a commercial when or personal satisfaction but you know there are consequences if things go wrong sometimes that are not necessarily very good so you know you do have some big things to to make sure that you're also covering um, once you get into some of these topics and I think this is. Um... Again, something that can apply, excuse me, across the whole of surveying in that, you know, we train to do a technical job, but it's then how you apply that skills and that knowledge. And as you go through your, you know, university courses, your graduate schemes, you know, and get started, you know, we talk, you know, I mentioned soft skills earlier on, that there's nothing soft about those skills. They're really hard, but it's putting that emphasis on, you know, that there's a lot of research on having a diverse team and the thinking and, you know, the great ideas that can come out of that. But you've got to learn to be part of a diverse team. You've got to learn to manage a diverse team. And you've got to learn to bring a diverse team together so you can, you know, get to the the goal and, and, and where you want to be. Can I ask you about, you now work for yourself. You know, how yeah. did you sort of go from going all over the world, being employed, being told what to do, to then thinking, you know, right, I'm going to do this myself. So I got quite senior in an international sort of organization um, doing survey work. And it got purchased by our competition and they didn't need most of us. So that was a lesson, I suppose. In fact, that was a lesson throughout my life was that each company I seemed to work for seemed to be purchased or or get, get changed massively. But anyway, the circumstances were not ideal at all for many people on an individual and a personal basis. But essentially, I'd had enough of corporate hospitality, corporate infrastructure, politics, and people working in a different direction to what A, I thought we were, B, was actually correct, and what the institution or the organization represented or what I thought it represented. So I sort of had enough of that, and I thought, you know, so that I'll, you know, I'll, I couldn't see any other group or company wanting to employ me, so I thought, well, I'll just do something on my own and tell people what I thought, to, thought they needed to do. And was fortunate that I... Just, I, I found some work quite early on so I just kept at it really and I'm still here so I did about um, 
think I worked out, I did about 22 years in corporate structures, um, working as a surveyor in some form or survey management in, in latterly. And I've probably done nearly the same now in you know, running my own company or being self-employed. I've found it quite different, actually. The, the, I always remember moving from onshore on, into the office and managing or helping to manage uh, various surveys. And the big change then was instead of being focused on one particular project, doing it from cradle to grave, getting things right, getting the data, making everybody happy. You were suddenly in an office and there were 10 jobs on and you were spinning nine plates and the other the other plate couldn't spin. There was something that you needed to really fix, but you couldn't let the other stuff go. And that was a change of dynamics and a, and a, and a reset for me, as was moving out of a corporate sort of controlled environment, which was really quite secure in many respects. You know, you, know, you have your salary, you have a pension, there's an organization, there's an HR department, you know, there's there's people you can talk to and then, okay, this is, you know, this is me. Oh, I need a phone. The company phone isn't mine anymore. I need to go and get a, I need to get my phone. I need to keep the number because the only, the only people I want to talk to are the people that have got my old number. Just little things like that, that you sort of think, oh, right, no, I'm going to have to deal with all that now, all that sort of naff stuff that isn't really, it's, isn't really it's what you thought you were doing for. Yeah, it's a change from doing the technical job and being supported to then being a surveying business owner and what that involves yeah. and the practicalities and the and, and the responsibilities. So here's the thing, Gordon. I'd love to know more about geospatial and all that jazz. But I'm a resi valuer. And so I haven't even prepared any questions other than, please, can you explain in the idiot's guide what it's all about? Uh, because I think there's lots of us as surveyors who do you know with very different work in very different markets and yet we all come under this banner of surveyors and even you know even globally a surveyor in one country is very very different to to another you know so I'm always interested in what other people do but I have no idea what it's all about other than feeling really intimidated because people who do the geo stuff to me seem really cool and I don't know if that's, <laughs> that's true or not, <laughs> but perhaps you can enlighten me. So, so you know, where where do we start to understand this whole world? So I think geospatial, we probably want to pull it back a wee bit and start somewhere in the past, not in any specific period or time slot, but essentially there was a need to understand what people had in terms of assets. So those were the rulers and the emperors and the, the, the regional sort of bureaucrats. And... They required people to, a bit like a quantitative surveyor perhaps, to assemble the assets. And part of that was the land. And so there was a, a measurement requirement of the land and the area of the land that they controlled or that they owned. And from those very early beginnings, we started to see maps and mapping that then produced the documentation that supported that. So wind on a few millennia, basically, and... We're in a civilized society, hopefully, but it generally requires some sort of location and some sort of context to many of our activities that take place. And so maybe just last century, we were looking at countries and nations and regions and uh, counties even requiring maps to help them understand what, again, what assets they had, how they got from place to place. This sort of start of infrastructure was something that was planned out on maps and charts and plans. So really the, the land surveyor, which is the older term that has become geospatial surveying, if you like, that land surveyor was somebody who was tasked to help construct 
either a building or a road or a canal. So early sort of construction-related tasks required some form of mapping or some form of plan. And so they worked quite closely with the architects, typically. But more and more, they had their own identity in developing usually quite quite well money. People might want a plan of their estate, and therefore a surveyor would be um, called upon. And that developed over a period of time, usually sort of 17th, 18th century, you saw maps developed for the various counties and for various people's tasks. And that land surveying task has really been something that the English used to some extent when they were in Scotland because they wanted to control Scotland in the sort of 17th and 18th century. So maps were an advantage there. So there was a military component to all of this. And even way back in the early days, some of the, the ordnance survey by name, ordnance being military term. So the maps had several functions, you know, both the, the civil function and the military or the defence function. Um, and out of that really has grown what we might now consider to be the geospatial industry. We use positioning and mapping as it was to get from A to B, you know, plan our route. You know, if we're going to drive somewhere on holiday, it would be interesting to find out you know, what the route would be. Um, it's much easier now, of course, with location devices, but the underlying mapping, the underlying measurements were all basically carried out by uh, land surveyors typically. So there's lots of instances. And the thing that got me into it was looking at things like Swiss mapping of the Alps. because I couldn't figure out how they could possibly survey those peaks, these mountains, and then generate something on a piece of paper that gave you some impression of what they looked like. And the, so that sort of intrigued me. But generally the, the, the land surveyor would support Boundaries, demarcation of boundaries. You know, if you wanted to install electricity in a in a town or in a in a region, the route that the electric uh, cabling would take that that would be something that a surveyor would would be supportive of. But the actual map that they would then create would be a very context specific one, one for the electricity company about here's where you put your poles or your pylons, and here's a route that seems to make sense. Talking to the engineer, and then the engineer would go away and decide if that was appropriate or not. Alongside that, though, the, the surveyor was also referencing the actual topographic map, the land survey map of the habitat, the mountains, the rocks, the features, the rivers. And those are sort of the maps that we're probably more familiar with if we think of a northern survey map. It's got the general layout of the land and the ground. So if you're standing on the top of a hill, you've got half a chance of knowing exactly what peak you're looking at by looking at the northern survey map and orientating it the right way. So all those maps were to me, the foundation of much of the Industrial Revolution, the, the development of the, the sort of the Western society used maps and coordinates and those reference frames in order to base their decisions and their plans and their developments on. And I suppose you could also look at things like you know, empire as it was in the Victorian era, the number of places that were basically colonised and hot in the foot of, or, or hot behind whoever was colonizing in terms of a, a regiment or a, putting a garrison together, there'd be some survey company or survey group who would then map out those lands and those areas. Not always to the best um, endeavors at the time, but not always over a period of time was that the best idea. You get these arbitrary lines between certain countries and you sort of kind of wonder why they were. And often it was at a, a relatively possibly looking back at a slightly naive approach to where we'll just put a line across there and that's yours and this is ours sort of thing. Yeah, that's, that's really, thanks for that. <laughs> that's really <laughs> interesting. What comes to mind for me, uh, a couple of 
oh, many years ago now, actually. It was quite funny. I organised a women in surveying get-together at the Coal Authority Museum in Mansfield. And it was quite funny because there was two women and more men came because they were interested in (laughs) going to the museum. Uh, But that aside, at that museum, and I'll put a link in the show notes, they've got all the original coal board maps. Oh, yes. um, Of, you know, the first maps that were, you know, they're made out of material and then this, you know, um, special container uh, with the right temperature and, and all of that stuff. And it was really fascinating to see how... They were first drawn up and guesswork to to many degrees in terms of put, putting things together and uh, and just absolutely fascinating to see how I mean it's such a big leap now if we think about all the technology that we've got what it was like back then you know I think my my kids now you know they can use the phone and getting them to use a dial up phone or have no phone you know is is huge but you know just even thinking you know it's such a big leap isn't it to you know if we ha- if, if everything stopped how would we get back to get back to the basics yeah but it's quite fascinating when you see these old maps and i think a lot of the skills that actually went into creating these maps have been lost from the measurement process all the way through if we think of in my either um starting with um theodolites levels total stations taking angles and measurements and reducing these down and then plotting them by hand, giving them to the my senior person who would then decide whether it was worthy or not. That process is now automated. There's a scanner or there's an automatic total station or there's remote sensing. There's theodolite, uh, there's uh, satellites, um, which will give you very high resolution information very, very quickly. So rather than me going to a park and picking off each tree and symbolizing that on my survey notebook, you're going to get that within seconds from some aerial photography or from satellite imagery. So you're absolutely right. The technology has moved masses of things along, primarily in the data collection and the volumes of data. And I think the the availability of that data to the wider public is now suddenly something that, that has never really been there before. So the idea that if you do have a satellite and you do have imagery, that imagery is going to be available to the, the you know the public um, almost immediately. And that's a great resource for many people, but it's also a bit of a conundrum from the surveyor's point of view because they, you sometimes don't know who your user is. Your client, if you like, was very established when you were a surveyor. Go out, measure this field because that might be a road bypass or a, a building development. Now that satellite imagery that's used by the same people to look at the road or the or the building development, but the surveyor now feels a bit marginalised. Where's my role in that? How do I provide value? How do I you know, allow that to be trusted data and allow people to make informed decisions. So the day-to-day job has changed from quite slow land survey techniques to much, much faster data collection, some of it automated. Maybe there's a future where everybody's got some form of semi-automatic car that is scanning things all the time. And if you harvest that data, you're going to get a lot of information that you would otherwise be sending a survey team out to collect. So you can see how there are some trends in technology that will act, will impact on us, for sure. Just as an aside then, on the hydrographic side, on the offshore and the ocean side, there wasn't really a lot of technology at all. It was it was lead line, which was basically a, a way of, of putting a weight down until it hit the bottom. And you would just shout out the, the number and then that got recorded. So it was very slow, not very well controlled, really, although there was a lot of art to it. And a sextant, which was really for navigation, but then got used for, for serving in the, in the smaller areas. 
And that technology has only slowly been replaced over the last 40, 50 years by echo sounders and acoustics. Multi-beam echo sounders are, are the great thing at the moment because they give you large swaths of data. And then if you couple that with GPS or GNSS, which gives you essentially an instantaneous position anywhere on earth to within, well, a meter or two anyway, you're suddenly into a digital world where you can collect lots and lots of data and supply that to users. And now in this century, the users are maybe there's 15 or 20 different stakeholders who would be interested in data from the oceans and the seas, whereas a hundred years ago, it was the Navy and maybe some maritime users as well. It was very narrow. And that's why we don't, there are large chunks of our oceans that are not well known at all. I mean, we all kind of sadly know about MH370 and the loss of the aircraft west of Australia. Those areas were just unexplored by any modern technologies or modern means. The first, the first company that went to look in that search site didn't have the technology to go as deep as the water actually was. So they had to sort of abandon their attempt and go away again. There's an area in the South Atlantic, Southern Ocean, about the size of France, which has got no data in it, no modern data. So if you think about managing our assets and our natural capital and looking at the earth in that sense, in a bigger picture sense, there's large chunks where we don't really know what we've got and what should be preserved. And it's, and it's staggering. It's fasc- yeah, this is what I find fascinating and quite a, a leap for my brain <laughs> to, to, to get to. Because you start off with being curious about a map and a local yeah. area. And, you know, they, you, 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 you expand out and, you know, you, we think about, oh, how do you map the Swiss Alps? And, you know, you keep building it. And this is, I, I guess, where for a lot of people, I, I, you know, I... I come back to my my childhood in Wales and I thought I'd never leave my little village in Wales. It's such a big gap between that and exploring oceans and seas that have just never been looked at before. And and it just makes me realise how big the world is. And we feel very, very connected and everything, you know, with the news and technology and internet and everything. And yet it's so big and so wide and it's quite a hard concept, I think. And I hope I'm not alone. I'm thinking this. No, no, I, it's quite a hard, hard concept for people to, to bring it into reality, you know? No, it is. And that's why actually one of the challenges is to sort of raise the awareness in, in people's consciousness that, that there are things to be done that, that are important. You know, nowadays we sort of know that the ocean accounts for every second breath that we take. It's coming from the ocean. It's not coming from other sources. So the oceans are actually quite important to maintain for sustainability, to, for an enduring sort of life cycle. And we've often just seen them as a, as a big open canvas, just, you know, we're paddling on the beach and look out there, there's not much there. There might be the odd little ship or boat, but really it's a, just a huge piece of water and it doesn't really matter if you, you know, if, if some detritus of some form, you know, your, your sandwich crust goes in the water, whatever, it'll all get consumed or it'll all go away. Sadly, that, that's not always the case. And more and more we hear instances of something happens in one area and it affects another area because... The ocean is interconnecting us all, but it is big and it, and and it's it's fairly resilient. But we just don't know enough about it, I don't think. And 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 that's the common theme. If you think from me surveying a castle in North Wales, which is one of my first jobs, which is a right pain because it's got no straight walls, I can tell you, um, <laughs> to you know mapping areas of of sea mounts in Atlantic or whatever, it's about exploring. It's about finding out things that maybe other people don't have. It's not my first priority, but it's 
it's a nice thing that you get along with the other things that you get. It's like walking across snow the first time. You're the first one with snow prints, footprints. Uh, you know, that, there's something a little bit magical about that. And yeah. I, the, the kid yeah. in me still likes that idea that I'm doing something that maybe no one else has really done or not very many. So it makes you feel special. And I think that's that's quite important. And if you've got a job that allows you to feel just occasionally, wow, that's that's amazing or that's weird or whatever, then I think that's really good. And I've always managed to find, <laughs> not every job for sure, but, you know, there are jobs that come and go and, and occasionally there is, a, there is a good job and you put up with some of the other ones in order for the next one to come along. See, this is why I think people who work in geo and hydro are rock stars because you're, because <laughs> you've just, you've just summed up that sort of adventurous spirit, being able to go out and, and, and do all of these things. It's, um, you, you talked about data and yeah. data is where the, the, the money is, is at, you know, the more you, you collect that and, at, you know, it can be used for lots of different purposes. It sounds like quite an expensive industry or profession, business, however people like to term it, to get into. Mm. Because surely all of this fancy gadgetry you've got is really expensive. Do people sit up and work by themselves or do you tend to work for the big firms? Or how? what does it all, So, you know, who are the key players? How does it all work? Okay, um, that's a really good question. So it is expensive. So the, the capital outlay and the, the startup is not, it's not cheap. And it's quite competitive once you're there as well. So you don't go into it lightly. So I would say that there are several sort of layers of companies. So the companies that want the information, and we can think of maybe energy companies like the Shell and BPs from the hydrocarbon era, but also now renewable companies. We have submarine telecoms. And, and cabling that goes all around the world to keep our internet happy. And we've got maritime transportation. They're probably the main users of data. But that's very context. That's like looking at your roadmap and not knowing where the hills are because all you need to know is how to get to Leeds from you know, Bradford. Might not be very far, but you just want to know that road is there and you're not too sure about the, the mountains either side or whatever. And it's a wee bit like that in the ocean circles and, and, and surveying at sea. The BPs and Shells want information specifically for their infrastructure project related to energy, as do renewables and as do the telecom cables. So they are looking for quite specific types of data, small areas, high density, high resolution data sets. If you're in the maritime transportation business, you're more interested in hazards and safety at sea. So you possibly want a more generalized um, area surveyed and maybe not to the highest degree, but you just want to know that you've got certain hazards or you don't have any hazards. So that's a sort of a validation process and that's always been quite high. So the company that might think, oh, we do survey on land, we've got some scanners, it can be that difficult, we'll stick them in a boat and off we go. Acoustics and data, there's, there's extra processing involved. You know, the distortion and the signaling needs to be rectified. The motion of the vessels need to be rectified. And it does pay, I mean, you know, there's certainly, you know, to get a land survey of an acre doesn't necessarily cost a huge amount, depending on which technology and how, what the resolution is. Likewise, offshore, you can make a stab at it. But if you really want a similar resolution to that onshore, if you're thinking of a, a land survey at that sort of scale, it's going to be quite expensive, if not very expensive. And the tools are available, but there's quite a lot of processing and, and training to get to that point. So that doesn't stop lots of people trying to do it, but they tend to have economies of scale or they tend to be doing other things as well. So back when I kind of first got involved, 
there were companies in the UK that had ships and they had surveyors and they had teams and they went off and they did survey work. Most of those companies have gone gone by the wayside. A few have been purchased and, and, and mergers and acquisitions, but most of them have withered, essentially, because a ship is very expensive unless you're utilizing it all the time. And if you haven't got a survey next week, you've still got a ship and all the crew that go with that. And so, you know, that that's not an easy model to to convince people that it works. And your oil company, as an example, they don't need a survey every day. In fact, they don't really want a survey at all. They just want to build infrastructure and sell oil or gas. But they need a survey in order to comply with the regulations, in order to comply with the engineering requirements. So you're in that sort of marketplace. But that's not to say that they're always looking for teams. It's a, it's a team event. You know, they need people with you know, a variety of skills. The ships are expensive, so it's a 24-hour operation often. So you need two sets of people, at least, if not three sets of people. And the camaraderie that you get is, is can be quite good as well. I mean, assuming the job goes well, if it goes badly, then it's not so easy. But um, So small companies might get involved in the coastal mm. ports and harbours. And there's certainly in the UK, there's, you know, can probably, we can probably find some links to you know half a dozen small companies quite quickly. Bigger companies are usually based either Aberdeen or the South Coast because they're looking at a more international eye on the marketplace as well. So how does it work? So these firms, do they identify an area that people are interested in? They go and survey it and then sell the data or do they specifically go out when a client asks for data? And you're nodding your head. So yeah, so you only go out when someone pays you or how strategic are you? Pretty much, pretty much. Um, So... The survey itself is not of a great deal of interest and it's got a sell-by date because of regulations. So typically, if it's more than six months old, there are problems using the data because it's no longer up to date. What regulations would they be? There are various green management organisation type. Like uh, an ABC question now, isn't it? It is, yes. (laughs) Tell me the regulations. Um, So there are some regulations. The Marine and Coast Guard Agency, the concessions by either the Crown Estate or by the Marine Management Organisation in the UK, they are the sorts of organisations that will have specifications and requirements and, and associated with that are some regulations that they basically impose. I mean, it's not all regulations, but essentially there's a sell-by date and people often think, well, there's nothing happening offshore. But in fact, the Southern North Sea from about the Humberside South is a dynamic area. And although there are a few windmills going up for the energy off the Humber and, and down off the Norfolk coast, the very selected sites where they're not expecting the dynamics of the seabed to move and then allow the monopiles to all fall over. But the seismic data, so that's data underneath the ground, so geological data, there have been in the past periods when countries would announce that they were planning to allow concessions to explore and there would be some survey companies, really seismic companies rather than pure survey companies, they would speculate by going and collecting data and then attempting to sell that. But they were usually sponsored by the the, the nations or, or the, the, the organizations that were in control of the concession areas. Is the data in one data bank somewhere? You know, if I if I think on the residential side we've got a you know a right move and Zoopla and land registry you know, you don't want to be reinventing the wheel. Is it? Is there a, a go-to starting point for people? Or um, That's also a really good question. There's a lot of catch-up going on in the ocean space. There's in a, a, new, a European initiative called eModnet was essentially a, a, a prime mover in bringing 
organizations, primarily countries, but others together to share data and to put it onto a unified platform. But outside of that, you're looking at Coastal Observatory, which are county council-led organizations around our coasts. They have data sets for monitoring the coast, so a bit closer to home. And of course, you have the UK Hydrographic Office who have a certain amount of data on site. So if you were if you were interested, you would be able to find some information and certainly things like recs and some of the more common types of uh, interest uh, items. You can find these on some of those websites. Other organizations like oil and gas companies and telecoms companies, they don't like to share too much information about where their assets are because they're always worried that someone they don't like will come along and want to do them harm, as we could all imagine. And it's a bit like, you know, buying land here, you know, they have options. You know, all the supermarkets do it, have, have options on land to prevent someone else doing something in case they get a commercial advantage and, and whatnot. Fascinating. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's as sophisticated as that. There's quite a lot of money goes into so in renewables, an area will be announced as being available to become a wind farm and then companies will then bid their their solution to, you know, how do I? How do we generate you know electricity from this area? And those those types of bids will involve some survey work. But then the next stage, even if you're successful with with your concept, the next stage will you will have to do a complete survey of all the data is then brought together, and then that's presented to the authorities so that you can convince them that you've done your you know you now understand what's there because you essentially you're bidding in an area that you don't know anything about mm. before. Um, you collect the data. And that's quite an expensive exercise. And there's a couple of examples where wind farms were planned, but because they did the survey and they discovered what they discovered, they've cancelled it and said, well, we're not going to do that now because they've realised the conditions are not going to work for them. So good, good for the survey company, but in the bigger picture, maybe not so efficient. So high, high risk, I guess. Yeah. Can be. You mentioned wind farms and things, and uh, you know, I want to ask you about climate climate change because I think if ever there was a surveyor who had you know frontline access to what is going wrong with the world I'd have thought it would be you know this kind of surveying because you're right there have have you seen that change directly over the time how do you feel about the whole climate change it's quite frightening yeah well no it's quite frightening I mean there's there's lots of information that is not necessarily as reliable as you'd like, but I think we can't deny there are trends and there are changes. Um, so, you know, I, I've sat through little conferences and workshops with other surveyors where the sea level hasn't been measured to be rising significantly, and I've been in others where it has been. And then you're looking at other factors around you know, glacial melt versus you know the the rebound of the of the earth because it doesn't have the weight of ice on it anymore. So you get you get these sort of lo- very long term slow parameters that are changing. But inevitably, yeah, I've got I've got numerous examples of just areas that have been changing. Actually, the first one is back to the Swiss Alps. Um, I looked recently at going back to where I did some survey work when I was at, at, at university um, mapping glaciers. But the glaciers are tiny compared to what we had back in my, and that's in my lifetime. And we were, at the time, we were monitoring their rate of speed. And they, they from memory, they, they had slowed down, but they hadn't stopped and they weren't retreating. But now they're going back at a huge, a huge pace. And, 
you know, that's, it's just at a personal level, it's just really sad, but the bigger picture is, is quite scary because however you try to kind of think of mitigation, it's, it's not clear of what will actually, you know, get us back to a, a, an environment that will, will endure the changes that we will inevitably do as a, as a society on it. You know, we can't, we can't live and have no impact, you know, but can we make the impact a, a minimum? And I think it was explained to me in a really nice way not that long ago. They talk about the tipping point and they talk about the tipping point in terms of degrees and, the, well, if we go past a certain degree, we won't get things back. But actually, I see it on a personal level where what you and I and, and anyone watches the podcast might think is that what they do by putting that piece of plastic in the recycle bin and not in the bin or being just a bit more sustainable around there, that choice might be the tipping point to bring us back rather than to tip us over. So That, that makes total sense to me. I think sometimes we can think about climate and all the things that we see. And I know a few people who actually really struggle with it, climate anxiety. You know, it's such a big world and such a big place and what can I do? you know, as a surveyor in Margate on a wet Tuesday, <laughs> you know, so, so, uh, as I often refer to that poor surveyor, you know, what can they do about it? But you're right. It's about that sense of direction that we're heading and making a better choice. We'll, we'll never really know if it's the right choice and we'll never really know how much of an impact it's going to make, but we know there'll be benefits in, you know, reducing, not using, you know, uh, resources and therefore we've we've just got to make the choices that we can and it's quite disheartening you know to see everybody arguing over each with each other over what's the right thing and and what wrong thing to do but you get a sense of this is a global issue and we do have to pull together do you see because obviously you work more globally or, or, or see the world do you get a sense of that pulling together and that consistent message or is it just as messy as it feels here in the UK I think the messaging is getting better and it's it's more consistent. I don't think it's always at the right volume or the right level that it actually impacts on on you know enough of society. I think we're pretty good in the UK generally with some of the messaging. I think Europe's probably better for some reason. But if I go to somewhere if I'm just thinking you know if I go to Southeast Asia there are places in Southeast Asia where I remember um there's there's huge piles of plastic beside the river. But there's a community there, that's their job, is to sift through that plastic and to sort it. And on one level, that's sort of an entrepreneur trying to sort of make good out of you know, a certain um, circumstance. But on the other hand, that's, for them, that's, that gives them a kind of a psychological, it's okay to throw plastic in the river because someone further down the river will scoop it up and it's their job to then do something with that. And it's, it's trying to break down that kind of, assumption that someone else will fix it and actually the individual needs to do something at, at, at the source sometimes and I think we are probably a bit better connected and a bit better receivers of that or receptors of that messaging than, than in some parts of the world but actually you know when I think of the oceans and they talk about plastic in the oceans as an example that's a sort of gateway to climate change and climate action and just changing some of these things but the plastic itself is it's a headline but it but it's not a major, major problem because A, it's man-made, so you can fix it. It's not something that is You just stop breaking it. Yeah. And I think there's something like 10 rivers account for 90% of the plastic that's in the oceans. So we could we could do something with those 10 rivers if we had 
some moral authority to convince those that operate those operate these rivers to actually change their ways. But that's that's not so easy. So, you know, collectively we sometimes feel that it is a challenge to to get that messaging at that level. And things like COP twenty six in Glasgow, you know, they they do help, I think, to get that messaging where again society is making it a political issue that needs to be not a part of political article, but but political as in it this needs resolved and it and you know, it needs to be done from top down as well as by the individuals. But, um, can I can I ask you about when I have a look at information out there on how to become a surveyor? It's a mixed bag. Let's let's face it. I see lots on the construction side, but I do see quite a bit of activity with you know, the likes of um, you know get kids into survey. Oh, that there's some other ones because I can't remember the the names of them now. I'm sure, I'm sure you do, but you know just. There seems to be lots of well, some really good, useful stuff for kids and for people looking to get into the industry. Do you think there needs to be more? Is it good? Where are the gaps? Um, yes, do more. How do, you, how, do, how do you even get started, actually, to become you? I mean, I know we've talked about your, your career, but what <laughs> are there degrees in geospatial? Yes, yes, yes. No, there are. Yes, there, there's several degrees around the UK. They're kind of boutique because there's only usually between about 10 and 20 people on them. And people are usually doing them because they didn't want to do whatever else they were doing and they and they found it. It wasn't a, a conscious decision. I mean, like myself, as we talked before, sort of you fall into it and then you, you can let go in some respects. There are some courses at, at university level. There are some MSc courses as well, which I, I mean, they're good and they fill a gap, but they're, they're not ideal. There's not enough apprenticeship and on-job sort of support and training. I think that there are some trailblazer apprenticeships around geospatial, really related to construction, as you say. But it's hard to, to sort of sell the concept of, of traditional surveying because it's changing so quickly because of the technology that we talked about. It's it's actually quite hard, I think, for a university to conceive what, what they should be giving their students that will be fit for purpose in you know, three maybe not three, but five to 10 years' time. And I think that's a big challenge for us generally as a profession. So getting into the profession, if you're at all interested in surveying, exploring, maps, um, even GIS, you know, GIS, lots of people sit at a desk and do things on GIS in the local uh, authority or for various companies, um, as well as the, the Zooplas and the right moves. That all requires data. So someone has to collect that data. And if the the collection is left to a machine, then still someone has to then validate that the machine has done the right thing and has collected the right piece of information mm. and it's in the right place. Um, otherwise, you make all your decisions. And I had this in an oil company that I can't mention, but they did a lot of work and they looked at this cube of earth very closely and they were all excited that there, were, you know, there might be oil or gas there. And yeah, they didn't know they were about 400 miles from where they should have been. When they said, right, let's let's go find this stuff. And then, you know, unfortunately, they, well, we caught it in the bud and sort of said, well, actually, you're not going to go there. That's the wrong place to go. So the surveyor is still involved, but it's sometimes hard to articulate where and how that all works from a, from a student side or someone who's not actually. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's, that's a real challenge. I think that whole sort of context different industry but I was talking to someone not so long ago who's involved in transport planning so design of roads and that kind of thing and there's a lot of graduates newly qualified 
I don't know what degree professionals they, they were, but they're, they're in this job of, you know, designing the roads and yet they don't drive because in London, you don't need to drive. You can get the tube everywhere or a, or a camp from, or whatever. And so they're designing roads that turn with yes. no idea of actually how darn scary it might be if you're a double-decker bus to do that, you know, that, <laughs> that right turn. Um, and so... It's great all the technology takes us so far, but we've got to bring it back to the, the humanize it, you know, the experience of what it's like to do that. And it must be so hard, I think, for um, for people coming through not to have that that experience, that balance, isn't it, of old, enough old school to know who's who and enough technology to be able to work the phone. Yeah, I think I think it's a mix of things. I think if you were lucky enough to be on a on a, a geospatial course. Part of that course would introduce you to some of the market, some of the potential customers, be they the stakeholders who might be interested in a, in a surveyor on their team, or it might be some of the the contracting companies who need surveyors as part of their team. So, you know, if we think of HS2 as a, as a, as a massive infrastructure project, there's lots and lots of surveyors required to ensure that, you know, whatever the plan is, it goes as efficiently as possible that, you know, Surveyors don't necessarily judge whether the you know it's the right plan, whether it's politically correct or socially correct. They, those are other things to be debated. But if the task is to survey or to help the, the planning of a route, then you want that done as efficiently as possible so that they don't mess up the route or they don't go around the long way, as it were. Mm. And, you know, the tolerances are, are sometimes quite tight in, in some of those things. I mean, railways don't tend to go up and down mountains. They like to go either through them or around them. So the tunnel surveyors, you know, they have a challenge because they don't have GPS. Tunnel surveyors, there's tunnel yeah, surveyors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and like the mining, like you mentioned right at the start, you know, you've got to you've got to be able to survey down the shaft and along the various seams in, in mining surveys and know where that is and... and so well, why would you bother do that? Well, because someone else might think another shaft and you don't necessarily want them to collide. And I have a very famous uh, example from the southern Mississippi, I think it is, where a lake called Lake Penny was a, was a basically a very shallow lake that was being drilled. Um, but the, the drill and, and, the, and the well that they were sinking hit a salt mine. And the salt mine was just next door. And... Salt and water don't go very well. The whole thing collapsed and the lake basically went down the plug hole, literally. Oh, no. Took all the barges, to everything else. If you Google Lake Penny, you'll see a video of it. And it's still there now, but it's now 800 feet deep instead of 50. And for a while, the Mississippi was, and, and the Gulf of Mexico were sort of, the water was flowing north and into this hole until it all balanced out. But that was a case of the, the well being drilled in a position where the mine shaft was, essentially, you know, one of the seams. So... You know, if they if they known where they where they were relative to each other accurately, then they would have avoided that that disaster. Nobody was was killed. It wasn't that. It was just sort of a, a good example of position uh, sensitivity. But you know, the the land surveyors today and the geospatial surveyors today, they they have these sort of multifaceted things to think about. You know, you've got scanners that can be in the top of the car going around like a Google kind of street car type thing. But you've got the tunnel, or you've got the under London Underground needing monitored, so that you know you want to build the Elizabeth Line. Gosh, how do you put a new whole new underground through London? You know th- these are these are big challenges to the engineers, but also to the surveyors who are then supporting the engineers by having that data accurate 
trusted and in time so they can make the decision for the next piece. You don't hold them up. So it can be quite challenging, but it's quite exciting as well because, you know, who else gets to tunnel through London, you know? <laughs> and when I think about my uh, sector of Spain profession, you know, there are role models, there are places to go, people to hang out with, you know, to feel part of that community. What's it like on your side of the fence? I mean, I know about the um, Geoholics podcast and uh, Peter Cox, Defining Boundaries, and I'll put links to those in the uh, in the mm. podcast. But is there like a a place where you will go and hang out? Are there, you know, are there people to follow on LinkedIn or, you know, written the books, you know, that everybody's learned from or any off the top of your head that for people interested? So I don't, uh, there's a very good question. And I don't think that there is a single go-to. I think there's a series of go-tos. Um, in part, the RICS actually with, with its um, land and uh, resources group and then geomatics, as they call it, underneath that. You've also got the Chartered Institute of Civil Engineering Surveyors, and they have a, a, a similar sort of UK-centric land geospatial sort of element to them. The Survey Association is a trade association of the surveying companies that sign up to that kind of charter. So they're another group. But for the individual, it's not so easy. There isn't, I don't think, a collective kind of go-to group. The, the offshore side has got the Hydrographic Society, which is more of a society, more of a club, more of a, you know, networking element. But that, I think there's something that we're possibly missing in geospatial that I would say, partly because we are flung around the world and we never, mm-hmm. you know, the course I went on, I never worked with the people I was on the course with after that because we were all the surveyor assigned to another group. And when I joined the first company, I was in a small survey team and got sent abroad. We talked about that. But then when I first went offshore, again, I was the only surveyor in the team with engineers and uh, geologists, etc. So your experiences accumulate, but you can't always instantly find people that you can talk to and share that with sometimes. So it can take a bit of time. But I think in the UK, we're lucky. We've got Geobusiness as well, which is a, a big, relatively big show down in Excel in London, which is really manufacturers, users, stakeholders, educational groups, just all that touch on geospatial and geomatics come together for conference, site shows, talks, network events. And that that that's great. But as a community, it's it's not so easy to identify and, and sort of put a tab on, on one. So maybe there's a gap in the market. <laughs> yeah, one really big WhatsApp group. <laughs> that's what you need. Yeah, yeah, no, that might be. Yeah. And part, part of the reason I ask asked that is um uh, of late, we've had a few. I've had a few inquiries about people who are ex-military, and you and you talked about maps at the start and uh, yeah. and the purpose of them. And so there seems to be a really good crossover of skills for someone who's leaving the military. And it's, yeah. and it is it is that where do they where do you go where do you get started for someone who's you know not just coming from school but has got that life experience, some of the skills that that are needed, and it's quite hard. That, as a mature student, if you like, anyway, to get that that first break, the military guys assign them to. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it becomes a network of people that you know, rather than institutions or organisations. Sometimes that you know, the, the military guys of, of whatever type, be it he, she, navy, whatever, um, or, or army or air force, even they're great because they bring certain skills with them and experiences, not specific surveying experiences, but 
they've worked and they've lived usually away from home for a period of time. Mm-hmm. That's often what a land surveyor or a geospatial surveyor will have to do at some point. Often the ones that leave, it's a lifestyle choice. You know, they suddenly find they've got responsibilities at home, so they need to be at home and not, you know, overseas on a on a on a job. And the military also has a certain discipline around it in terms of identifying and delivering, sometimes under adverse conditions. But you know, usually that kind of workaround mentality. You know, if something's broken, then okay, that doesn't stop us. It just means we've got to fix that as well as the other things that we're trying to do. So I think the the sort of the attitude is probably with a capital A is probably one of the prime elements that geospatial surveyors actually have in their portfolio that they can offer teams and customers and clients and 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 their own sort of organizations. Yeah, and and if there's anybody listening to this who is ex-military or or a veteran, and apologies for using the wrong <laughs> technical terms, there are two places, two things I'd, I would recommend actually. One is a an organization called Building People which looks to join all the dots of all the different organizations and groups. And I know they've done some work with veterans. And also there's a, a little LinkedIn group that's been set up by one of our Surveyor Hub members just to bring, he's ex, ex-military, just to bring veterans together and help each other out. And I think that community is so powerfully needed and you just demonstrated that there's clearly a gap somewhere. But that's the kind of thing that makes that makes a difference, doesn't it? That encouragement, that support, that attitude and way of thinking. Well, well it does. And I think, you know, as you say, if there's someone listening is thinking, well, how, how do I, you know, what, what are my first steps? Get in contact, you know, whether it's someone via, you know, a podcast and a link or whether it's someone that you meet or go to one of the society events or, or the mm-hmm. uh, institution events. You know, it, we, we sound like we know what we're talking about. Often we don't. We're just blathering on because you know it, it's fun. But we like meeting new people. That's also part of the part of the whole thing as well. And people that are interested and are willing to turn up are, are usually valuable assets to be you know to be chatted to and and to not to sort of um, sell them anything necessarily, but to help them understand what what things might really be like. I mean, part of my interview te- technique for the people I used to recruit was you know, are you scared of heights? And anyone that said yes, he's going, well, you need to think twice about coming in the offshore business because you're going to be in a helicopter probably. And if you're not, you'll probably be working at somewhere at some time at height. Think, you know, is this is this really what you want to do? And it's surprising how many people went, actually, I'm not really scared of heights. Okay, that's fine. Let's move on. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that you'd want to know before you got to interview yeah. stage. Yeah. Yeah. Some of these things you can overcome, but, you know, anyone that, uh, like my mother, used to be absolutely petrified of heights, so... <laughs> different story yeah no i think i think it's all about communication isn't it it's all about a bit of networking but it's not a, it's not a big heavy sales thing and yeah there's lots of us that probably look a bit ancient and you know wrinkled but we're quite young at heart i would say generally as in the geospatial so i think most people are open-minded about talking to people who have any sorts of questions there's no as they say there's no there's no stupid question there is and and I think when I talk to people who are, want to come into our profession or, you know, or, or newly qualified or, or just in, what I just love is their enthusiasm and their fizz for how exciting everything is. And you forget that when you get, as you say, you get a bit old and wrinkly and a bit long in the tooth of, uh, and realise how far you've come and how things have, have changed. I don't think you should be ever threatened by any of that, but harness it and, you know, help them to take the next leap of faith in our work forward really 
Well, I, I can only sort of say when I was sort of young and overly keen on things, I definitely found people that would listen to me who I did think were old and wrinkly, but they usually had a bit of advice and that advice actually stood its time and, and served well mm-hmm. as well. So in a way, a combination of, you know, you know, that eagerness of youth and and a, and a rather more kind of salutary look at things occasionally is probably quite a good combination. And surveyors should always be open to someone else checking or not challenging, but kind of checking what they what they do or what they say or what they measure or, or provide. So, you know, I think those types of conversations, it's, it's great. And I get a lot of, I get a lot of things out of young surveyor networks and, and groups through FIG, RICS, the Hydrographic Society. It's often where the most interesting discussions are because people don't have the you know this sort of idea that it has to be done this way because you know, why because there's this new technique that you don't know about that we do and it's going to be really good you go oh okay and then 10 years later some of them have become new and whiz bang and others nah it's just like a tomorrow's world episode where nothing actually ever made it yeah so, yeah. yeah it's all good fun Gordon it's been fantastic to talk to you today thank you ever so much that's okay my pleasure Thanks for listening. Don't forget to take a look at the show notes when you get a chance for the resources and the links we mention in the conversation. I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review on my Love Surveying Google page or on Apple iTunes, because every time you do, you'll also be helping make a difference in the world. Love Surveying is a global partner with B1G1, and you can find out more information about our impact on the Love Surveying website. Oh, and don't forget, you can watch our free community webinars and find out more about becoming a Surveyor Hub supporter by visiting lovesurveying.com forward slash the Surveyor Hub. I'll see you next time.